Well, can you believe it? We're at the end of our Case for Truth series this Sunday morning, and I don't want you to cheer over that, but I do realize we've really been asking you to put your thinking caps on, as my teacher used to say when I was a kid, put your thinking cap on, Jim. And we've really been asking you to do some thinking because we've been looking at, at why we believe what we believe, and is there evidence beyond just experiential for the Christian faith in the reality of Jesus and what he makes possible for us. And so we are excited to, to however, be wrapping this up. I'm so grateful. I, I thank Dr. Wade Nunley, uh, Joe Dallas, uh, who have also helped me with this series. And today, of course, this is more my area, the, the science area. We looked at part one last week of can I believe in science and the Bible? And so we're going to go there, part two, today. And and I trust you'll just open your heart. And I promise I'm going to show you some pictures again. Okay. Because I know you all don't like math. You tell me that. <laughs> but first of all, just before I begin, I, I just feel on the last Sunday of this series, I, I need to, I, I need, I, I just, this is really on my heart. I just want to talk about res, resisting the deconstruction of your faith. And I especially, especially am concerned about those of you who are going to be doing what I did for nine years, and that is attend a secular university. Or you may be working for a company in town and just at coffee breaks and lunch with your friends, and they're gonna, they will make a concerted attempt to tear down your faith. And definitely in the educational academic community, you will have professors who don't just want to teach you information. Their agenda will be to deconstruct your faith and make you a fool, feel like a fool in the end, if you believe what the Bible says or if you have a relationship with Jesus. And so I just want to put these things in front of you. I'm not even going to charge you for them. This is totally free. This is not even a part of the message this morning. But first of all, know what you believe. And so kudos to you for, for, for just listening every weekend lately, like what we believe, and then the next step why you believe it? Why is it you believe? Like, like, why do you believe Jesus was a real person? And, and Wave Nunley bringing us that amazing message on, on evidence outside the Bible for the existence of Jesus. This stuff's solid gold. I mean, you, you, gotta, you gotta do this. You gotta think about these things. And don't be afraid of thinking. And may I invite you to doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. I, I had a fear of doubts at one time. Now I just doubt my doubts because I realize every doubt I have has an assumption underlying it that I can't prove anyway. And it's good to doubt your doubts and to say, okay, what? Okay, let, let's say there is no God and let's say we're just all an accident and let's just say, and, and follow through things through to their logical conclusion and see how empty and nihilistic they leave you. I mean, you, you gotta, listen, you're not a fool to believe that there's a creator and he wants to have a relationship with you. And you can think this stuff through. And I put a resource sheet this week on the face science stuff that's out right by where you can pick up hard copies of the message notes at the tables at the Boonville and, and, and Campbell entrances. Um, and today there's a special resource sheet, especially on faith and science. Read this stuff, think it through. Know why you believe what you do. And then, 
This is for every one of us. Let's not be passive. Let's stay ministry engaged. I just found that if you're trying to live for Jesus, but you never reach outside of yourself, and you never volunteer for a thing, and you never let God use you, and you never try to have a conversation with a non-Christian, I mean, there is something that stagnates in you, and it makes you a sitting duck. I'll tell you, from nine years at uh, being involved in a Kyle group, like that's the Assemblies of God University ministry arm. Uh, that's how I backed into ministry, actually, full-time. But, but I got involved in a, in a student ministry, and I tried to make my life count, and I didn't have time. But I saw other high school graduates come out of youth groups, just like ours and many other churches, and the students said, I don't have time to get involved in ministry. I don't have time to try to reach people while I'm at this university. And I'll tell you, if you're passive, you're a sitting duck. This has nothing to do with intellectual issues now. This has everything to do with the spiritual battle that's going on because, because there are agendas to take you down spiritually. And on top of that, it's our first core value. Let's stay hungry for God. You know, there are times I'd, be, I'd lie on the carpet on my dorm room with my face, my face in the carpet and I just say, oh God, I'm just so hungry for you. And, and, and I feel so lonely spiritually here, but I just need you. And I want to tell you, Jesus has amazing ways of revealing himself to us. This room is full of, of the amazing ways in which Jesus has revealed himself to so many of you. And he can do that, but you can't, you can't just sort of coast. Otherwise, uh, you are setting yourself up for spiritual danger. Can I hear an amen on that one? Amen. Okay. Can I hear that's, yeah, I'll try to do that. How about that? I'll try to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. The biblical account of creation. In the faith science discussion, probably the most controversial is, is the creation issue. And doesn't Genesis 1 mean I can no longer believe the Bible given what I've learned in my science classes? And the answer to that is no, but why? So we're going to look at the biblical account, and we're going to go start with the very first verse of the Bible, and that is Genesis 1 and verse 1. I'd like you to read it out loud with me, please. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All of existence pivots on the truthfulness of that statement. If there is no creator, that's the make-or-break deal. If there is no creator, then you're not accountable to anybody. You're a mistake. Your, your value will only be defined by the opinions of the majority, and, and, and that's it. But if we are intentionally created and we're here on purpose, that changes the whole ballgame. I've even had atheists admit that to me. That, that's the pivot point right there. So I promise you a few more Rich Hammer pictures. Rich, Richard Hammer, member of Central here, Assembly, I showed you, an astronomical photographer. I thought I'd just show you a few more of his amazing pictures. God created this. He created the heavens. Now, that doesn't mean heaven. That means the heavens were always relative to us, the sky and the universe and the stars we see. He created the heavens. And this is sometimes called the um, seven sisters or, or the uh, Pleiades. Pleiades uh, star cluster. It's one of the closest star clusters to our Earth. It would only take 450 years to reach there at the speed of light. It's pretty close to us. And, uh, and, and it, it's just stunning. It's an amazing stark picture. And Pleiades is mentioned three times in the Bible, twice in Job and once in Amos. The next picture is a little farther away from us, but in our galaxy. And this is Orion. 
this is the Orion Nebula. Orion's mentioned in the Bible as well. And it's massive. That, that nebula is 150 trillion, with a T, miles wide. And here's a close-up, another one Rich took. Isn't that gorgeous? I looked at that picture and I said, Jesus, you're a wonderful painter. I mean, the genius of, of creation is staggering. And then here is a specially remarkable picture. It's the Rosette Nebula. It's in our galaxy, about 5,000 light years away. But even with really strong telescopes, it's hard to see. Rich, Rich got this picture after 26 continuous hours of exposure in his cameras. And it's an amazing one. It's a massive, massive stars at its core um, emit radiation and ionized gas, and it kind of blows a hole through the middle of the larger uh, cloud. And uh, th there, it looks like a rose, right? Without the thorns, it's incredibly important. Now, I want you to just, we'll just leave that picture up for a moment. How do we know God created this? Can we prove scientifically that God created this? And the answer is no, because the science, tools of science, are limited. In fact, the laws of nature this is another whole subject. The laws of nature actually limit what we can know about nature for various reasons. But this, you, you know what, that exists there. And I can't take the tools of science and absolutely prove to you that God created that. Except that last week, we looked at what science is telling us. The universe had a beginning. The laws of nature are finely tuned beyond beyond the probability of it being by chance. And biological life is coded with information. We've, we saw last week, all of that, none of that takes our faith away, and all of that tends to point towards, towards this. And I'm not personally in the camp because we can't explain it. That means there must be a God. I mean, that sort of gap thing doesn't really, that can fall apart because at some point science will explain some things we can't explain now. And then does that mean there is no God? However, I found this. It's a huge logical leap to go from science works to there is no God. That's a huge logical leap that I personally, to be intellectually honest, cannot take. But it's amazing all that science is discovering to say that, you know what, you know what, this, this is pretty remarkable. And nothing that we're seeing in science actually takes, takes our faith away, even though that's not how it'll probably be presented to you in a classroom. In fact, here are some non-believers. I'm going to quote respected, worldwide known scientists that are not believers, like Michael Denton, who's an agnostic and a biochemist, a geneticist. He said, is it really credible that random processes could have constructed a reality, the smart, smallest element of which, like a functional protein or gene, is complex beyond our own creative capacities? A reality which, at the very antithesis, which is the very antithesis or opposite of chance, which excels in every sense anything produced by the intelligence of men. So that's an agnostic saying, we can't figure this out because it reflects a genius that defies chance. Or Fred Hoyle, uh, himself an atheist and a Cambridge University astronomer mathematician. This is a very famous quote out of the 20th century. He, he, he predicted and found carbon resonance, which is part of the foundation of the potential for carbon-based life to even exist. And he wrote, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. I love that quote. 
Those monkeys always work their way in there too, don't they? As well as with chemistry and biology. And that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in, the na in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Or uh, Robert Jastrow wrote a pretty popular book uh, 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 20 years ago. Uh, he was an astronomer, planetary physicist, and agnostic. He came to this conclusion. Again, he's an agnostic. He doesn't, he's got no agenda here to push a Christian movement. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. <laughs> he's able to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself up over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> that is pure classic right there. And that's right. This is where science goes. And there is an underground movement of scientists, scientists converting to Christ. Although it's not what you hear in the media yet because there's too much of a materialistic agenda. So that's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.2, the next verse. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So he creates the universe. He creates, he creates these amazing nebula and all of the galaxies and the stars. He creates the heavens and he creates the earth. Verse two, that earth now is in a very early stage of development as a planet. It is dark, it is formless we're told, it's void, it's empty, and it's covered with water. So that's, that's Genesis 1, verse 2. That's the second verse of the Bible. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. But God's Spirit, I'll tell you, whenever God's Spirit's hovering over the emptiest, darkest places in our lives, there's always hope. But God's Spirit was hovering over the waters. So you have now planet Earth, but it's covered with water, dark and formless. What will now follow will be God beginning to speak, the next verse. Then God said. Then God said. And there will be what Genesis 1 calls six creation days in which that formless, lifeless, empty planet will be transformed into something that we know today that just thrives with life. In fact, here's the most iconic picture of the 20th century, the marble earth picture. It was taken almost 50 years ago by one of the Apollo 17 astronauts on their way to the moon. And look at that amazing picture of our world just thriving, just thriving with life, this world full of beauty and God's great creative genius. The six creative days will now begin to outfit our planet with what you see here. It'll take it from formless, dark, and covered with water to this. And I just wanna, this is gonna be a little risky, I'm not going to put these verses in front of you for you to read unless you want to pick them up on your handheld device. But, but I like you either just to look at that picture or close your eyes. That's the risky part. Don't fall asleep on me, please. <laughs> but I don't want you to miss the elegance, just the poetic and, and, and beauty and the creative genius of what you're going to hear now. And I'm just going to going to mainly hit the God said moments. Verse 3, then God said, let there be light. 
and there was light. And the light, God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. There was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an open space between the waters. Let it divide the waters from waters. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land be seen. And it was so. And then God said, let plants grow from the earth, plants that have seeds. Let fruit trees grow on the earth that bring their kind of fruit and their own seeds. And it was so. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the open space of the heavens to divide day from night. And let them tell the days and the years and the times of the years. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters be full of living things. Let birds fly above the earth in the open space of the heavens. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring into being living things after their kind. Cattle and things that move upon the ground and wild animals of the earth after their kind. And it was so. Then God said, let us make man like us in our image. And let it... And let him be head over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over everything that moves on the ground. Now, if your eyes are closed, you can open them. And I hope your imagination just went a little crazy there, just watching all of that to get from formless, empty, and dark to that. And I want to tell you, not only is that one of the most elegant descriptions of of creation you'll find in any religion, That also, note this, what we just read is the highest view of God and the highest view of humanity you will find in any religion. This would have been earth-shattering for Israel because they would have, before this was written for them, ancient Israel would have been surrounded by nations who believed in many gods, not one creator God, and those gods were fickle, they were narcissistic, they were lazy, and they mainly created human beings as slave labor to make life easier for them. And then comes Genesis 1. There is nowhere that you find a higher view of God and a higher view of you and me as human beings. It's absolutely elegant and it's amazing. The big question, however, around what we just read is what we just read, was that poetry or was that actual history? Was it poetry or was it history? And the answer is yes. Because scripture is so incredible. It is, yes. Because it undeniably, what we just read, has an undeniable poetic structure to it. And I'm going to put it on the screen. And just keep your thinking hats on and just absorb this. You notice that the, world, the earth was formless and empty. So the creative days now bring form and fullness. Form to formlessness, fullness to emptiness. And so you see the two at the top. And on the left side is day one, day two, day three, which address issues of form, bringing form to formlessness. And on the right-hand side, the second set of three days, day four, day five, day six, have to do with fullness, taking form and then causing it to flourish with fullness. And so these correspond. Day one corresponds with day four. Day two with day five and day three with day six. Day one, light and dark. Day four, sun and moon. That's why you can have light and dark, but no sun and moon until the fourth day. It it may be 
a poetic way of saying God's responsible for this. Uh, day two, sea and air. And of course, day five, fish for the sea and birds for the air to fill the sea and the air, fullness. And then land and vegetation in day three, creatures and humans, day four. So there is undeniably a poetic structure to Genesis chapter one. So when people say to you, uh, but that doesn't sound very scientific to me, you'll say, "Mm, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. It says God's responsible for everything that's here. And that's the main thing. However, I do think this is also history. This is history. I like how Hugh Ross put it in his book, The Fingerprint of God. From the perspective of you, say, riding a little boat on that dark, formless earth covered with, with only water, and you're from that perspective on the surface of the earth looking at what's happening all around you through the creative days, it, it stunningly makes total scientific sense. And this was written ages ago in a, in a totally pre-scientific era of our world. And it's so precise. Listen to this. That first of all, you'd have the transformation of the Earth's atmosphere. Remember, everything was dark on the Earth? So you have the transformation of the Earth's atmosphere from opaque to translucent. This was probably happened on any, on any planet. Uh, well, on our planet, it, for life to be on our planet, this would have to happen. Transformation of Earth's atmosphere from opaque to translucent. That means that means there can be light. God said, let there be light, but you can't see anything specific because it's so foggy you might say. And then the formation of a stable water cycle. The waters below were separated from the waters above. Water and clouds and a water cycle, which is essential for life. And then establishment of the continents and the oceans. That's day three. And then day, day three also, the production of plants then on the continents. And then day four, the transformation of the atmosphere from translucent to transparent. This is where he said, let there be the sun and the moon. So now now our atmosphere becomes transparent like it is right now when it's not polluted. It's transparent and you can see stars and heavenly bodies. And then six, production of small sea animals. That's day five. And then also creation of sea mammals, day five. Creation of birds, day five. And then the making of land mammals. That's described in day six. Finally, the pinnacle of God's creation, the creation of human beings. Now, that makes perfect scientific sense. That, 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 that is not playing with the facts at all. That's exactly how life would emerge on a planet in that order. So, so Genesis 1 is absolutely astounding. It's poetry and history all at the same time, and it holds together with the highest view of God and the highest view of human beings in any religious literature in the world, and at the same time, it makes total scientific sense, although it was written in a pre-scientific era. The question that aggravates us, though, and makes some people feel like I can't be a Christian is, is the controversy over when did this happen? Like, when did this happen? Like, he talks about days. So, first of all, there are, th- there are three camps. First of all, there's the young earth creationists who would believe that all of this happened, judging from genealogies in the Old Testament, all of this happened 6,000 years ago. God created the universe, and God created uh, animals and human beings 6,000 years ago. 
Most scientists believe our planet's four and a half billion years old and the universe is 13.7 billion years old, but, but young earth creationists say, no, if we're gonna believe God's word, it was 6,000 years. I've heard maybe as long as 10,000 years ago, but 6,000 years ago is the common one. There's a second point of view called old earth creationism, where God's still the creator, but our earth is four and a half billion years old and the universe is 13.7 billion years old. And, uh, and the word day in, in Genesis, although it's generally used for a 24-hour day, it can in Hebrew mean period of time. So that God created these things over a longer period of time. And that historic narrative that we just read does correspond to the kind of seeming explosion of life at certain times for if we believe our earth is old. But God directed all of that and then created Adam and Eve and human beings at the pinnacle of his creation. And then there's a growing camp of a growing body of belief in actually churches like ours, people who love Jesus, follow Jesus, um, and, and they're called evolutionary creationists. And they were saying, yeah, we're here because of God, but God even either set the initial conditions for evolution, as I've learned about it in my biology classes to have happened, or he actually guided evolutionary processes so that the most unlikely outcome happened, and that's that we are here on a beautiful planet in human life. So, so this is a growing body of evidence. I represented the Assemblies of God a few years ago at the Association of the Advancement of Sciences uh, conference, which is a government pro program that was looking at faith science issues. And I found that most of the speakers, guys like Hugh Ross were, were there, who was not an evolutionary creationist, but they had a brain range. But most of the speakers probably were in this third camp. And, and their issue wasn't, therefore, how to, do, doesn't Genesis 1 contradict science? It was more like, you know, how can we make a case against the, the bias that we get from the media and educational institutions against us, and how can we gain, gain a hearing there? It wasn't that the Bible's inconsistent with science. So, so there's evolutionary creationists, there's young earth creationists, and there are old earth creationists. Now, I'm gonna do something that I risk making you mad at me because I know some people are very passionate about their, their position on this, and, 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 and first of all, I'm gonna tell you a story before I'm gonna tell you where I am. A friend of mine, was flying back into Springfield. He, dry, he flies a lot in his work, a Christian guy. And he said, we were just flying into Springfield on the last flight of my trip, and I was sitting beside a guy who wasn't a Christian, and we were having this interesting conversation about faith. And, and, he was, and my friend was trying to share about God created us and loved, loves us, and Jesus died on the cross for us. So we were having, and he said the conversation kind of ended with my friends almost feeling drawn by the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his own spiritual need, but he kind of just shut the conversation down by saying, but I could never be a Christian because I could never be intellectually honest and believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old. So he thought that that belief was what you had to believe in order to be a Christian. Uh, news alert. You have to believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you're a sinner and that he rose from the dead. That's what you need to believe. It's not like unless you believe one of these, and, and I, know, 
I, I know, like I grew up with young earth creationism, and, and I know how passionate you can be about that. And it might be right, the universe might have been created 6,000 years ago, I'm not sure. However, when I look at this, none of this is a condition of salvation, but I would say that, that young earth creationists really have to stretch the science Evolutionary creationists really have to stretch the theology. So guess where I am? I'm not telling you. <laughs> but as usual, right there in the middle, right? No, I am an old earth creationist, and I believe that human beings were acts of special creation by God in his image, unlike other animals. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that. I don't think, I don't think you need to believe the earth is only 6,000 years. In fact, in fact, when you're witnessing to people, that, that just may be something. You just bring them back to the poetry and the scientific history of Genesis chapter 1, and you say, you know, there's no dates given there. I mean, who knows who's right? I view this as an in-house controversy among Christians, but I never want it to be a reason for you not to have a relationship with Jesus. The question is not, was it 6,000 years ago, or did God use evolution, or all these things that might be hard to accept. The issue is, are we created or not? And if God created us, like I said at the beginning, that's the game changer. That's the game changer. In fact, I love what, uh, by the way, the resource sheet at the tables I mentioned to you, I have resources under all three of the creationist views, as well as just some books I've read on faith science in general that I recommend. Many people, I mean, people often ask me if I know any good books in these areas, and so I just thought I'd write them out, and if you want that as a resource sheet. But here it goes. Here's what we know for sure from Genesis. And I'm going to close today by, by, um, by quoting uh, a professor here at Central Assembly. He doesn't take pictures of stars like Rich Hammer does, but Dr. Michael Tennyson, a PhD in biology, a professor at at, at Evangel University. He wrestles with all of these things in a book he wrote with uh, Stephen Badger called Christian Perspectives on Origins. It's on my list as well. But I love how he puts it. We may have in-house debates over how old the earth is or what mechanisms God used to create life. All we know is that, is that science is telling us the universe had a beginning the laws of nature are finely tuned beyond the probability of chance, and there is information somehow that's been coded into creation. So, so here's, we may disagree on other things, but here's, here's what we know. So we're just going to quote out of his book. It's a bullet point list. We engineers love bullet point lists. The universe and everything in it had a beginning. This is what we know for sure from Genesis. And human history had a beginning. And there was only one God, and he is Yahweh or Jehovah, or translated in our English versions often as the Lord. He is the Lord. And God is personally and intimately involved in his creation. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2 without a doubt. I mean, this is as good as it gets. He's actually intimately involved in his creation. 
And God created everything, including life in the physical universe. And God brought everything into existence for his purpose. That's why you've got to answer the question at some point in your life, am I created or not? Because if you're created, then there's a divine purpose that you're here for and that you're accountable to your creator for. And this, but these are things we know for sure from Genesis. And humans, we find out, were created to live in loving relationship with him and with each other. And the first humans disobeyed God, Genesis chapter 3. They rebelled against God, destroying their relationship with the creator. God punished humans for disbelieving and disobeying him. He took them out of the Garden of Eden where the tree of life was there so they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever in a removed condition from God out of his mercy. But the rest of Genesis, indeed the rest of the Bible, reveals God's great desire for fellowship with humans to be restored. That's the rest of the story of the Bible. That's why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him should have eternal life. Paul puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new, what? Interesting word. The creator of the universe who creates these spectacular heavenly sceneries for us and, and outfitted this planet with unbelievable thriving life everywhere you look on the planet. He is about recreating your heart and mind. And someday, he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. We find that in the last few books of chapters of the Bible. But he, he has come to do something, to make us his new creation, to restore us to relationship with himself so that the old ways are gone and the new has come. And he goes on to say that all of this is from God. Who, and then he uses a relationship word, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what the whole Bible after Genesis 3 is all about. I still want, as your creator, a relationship with you. Would you be reconciled with me? And it can be possible in spite of our sin because of what Jesus did for us. The next verse and the last verse. For God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I also know no other faith system that tells me anything remotely close to that. It means nothing in me is disqualified from having a relationship with him because of what he did for me. You're here on purpose. You're created by a God who loves you, and he's been chasing you. And he sent his own son. At the risk, you'd still say no to him. He sent his own son so that he could make a way for you to be reconciled to him. Hallelujah. We just thank him for that. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're amazed at your love for us. Worship team, if you come. We love you, Jesus. We love you.